you will, Mark chapter 15, as we, I believe today, we'll finish up the account of Christ's death and burial. Not His resurrection, but we will get to His death and burial this morning, I believe. And so we want to read Mark's account of this, and we're going to read the entirety of chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, beginning... Verse 1, I'll be reading out a New King James Version. God's Word says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consolation, consul, consultation. Boy, let's start over. Mark chapter 15. We'll read the entire chapter in the New King James Version. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barnabas, I'm sorry, Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. They clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a, Cyren a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mixed with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, The King of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says that he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroyed the temple and, and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, My God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the last and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Well, this morning, we, uh, I'm planning anyway on completing our study of Luke 23 and the events around Christ's death and burial. We've tried to look at this rather than just as the historicity of the event. We don't deny that, of course. Um, but rather than just looking at what happened, We've been focusing in on the relationships that are described around the cross. In the events prior preceding it, um, going back to the uh, betrayal by Judas, uh, the events around his trial and the relationship there with his enemies, as well as his disciples, Peter, and his denial, of course, comes to mind. We looked at some of the relationships within that time of the trial and the relationship with the mob and the relationship with the, with the religious leaders and then the relationship with the Roman leaders. We then looked at the time on the cross itself <clears throat> where we have interactions between Jesus and soldiers and criminals and the mob still and strangers just walking into town, <laughs> as well as John and his mother, some of the women, 
we found that uh, throughout there is a consistency that is a reflection of how God relates to people today. That those who come to God with false statements like, do this and I'll believe, are given nothing. They're not even given an answer. They are completely ignored. Because the fact is, is just as Abraham told the rich man who was in torment, even if someone should come back from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. If they don't believe God's Word. That's how powerful this Word, this Bible, this Scriptures that we carry is. If they don't believe this, there's nothing more for God to do that would be more convincing to them. We've also seen within that that Christ is unwilling to defend Himself against ridiculous accusations. And those that want to sneer at it, they'll have their day of judgment. That day wasn't the time. He doesn't attempt to argue anyone into heaven. His answers to the one man who seemed to really want to do what's right, who really seemed to want to know what was really going on, um, were direct and pointed. But again, they were not extensive. In that this man, even though inside he might have wanted to do what was noble, was simply willing to be carried by the crowd. I just want to fit in. I just want to get along. I just want to go with the flow. And I don't want you to introduce something into my life that's going to make me have to resist society. That's going to make me stick out. That's going to make me maybe some enemies that I don't really want right now. We find that it's those who are broken. Those who are willing to acknowledge their own sinfulness, their own heartache, and recognize the great evil that is being perpetrated upon Christ this day. These are the ones to whom Christ will directly and fully speak. And when He does so, He gives words of great promise as well as great warning. He warns them to be careful in this world. But He also gives great promise that you will be with Me in the world to come. So while in this world we'll have trouble and we'll have opposition and as we get closer to the days of absolute darkness, we should expect men to do worse and worse and worse than what they did to Christ that day. We also draw nearer and nearer to the anticipated dawn of Christ's return. And so there's an expectation that wells up inside of us that we listen to the words of Christ, to the criminal on the cross, and we say, oh boy, wouldn't it be great today to be with him in paradise? And so we've seen these relationships mirror and reflect really how God deals with men's hearts by the degree to which they are resistant to his work. And yes, there is a way to resist God to the point that he no longer will speak to you. The Bible identifies at least one people group that God seems totally disinterested in even convicting them anymore. 
And those are false teachers. Of course, we also have Romans 1 where it describes men who have gotten so engulfed in sin of such, to such a degree that even their very consciences are burned off. They're lost. And so the idea that somehow I can just ignore or make fun of this without any future ramifications, that God is still somehow over a barrel to offer me salvation again and again and again until the, my last breath is not biblical. The fact is, you have no guarantee of any other opportunities if you squander those before you. But we come now that with Christ having died. With his death, we would think, well, there are no more relationships to talk about. But indeed, there are. In fact, some of those powerful relational statements are made in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through the end of the chapter. So let's go ahead and Read this portion of Scripture. Luke 23, 44. Now was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. The whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that it was hewn out of a rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation of the Sabbath drew near, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. They observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and presented spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Let's go, Lord, in prayer for you in our text. Lord God, we thank you for your word before us. We thank you for its truth and for its power as we open it. We have a certain joy of, of having it before us, but also a certain fearfulness, knowing the responsibility we have to handle it properly. To not introduce into it our ideas, but to extract from it your truth. We need your help in this. We greatly need your help. And we pray that you might Direct all that is spoken today. It might be accordance to your word truth. It might be by the working of your spirit, guarded from error and opinion. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we talked very briefly last week about some of these characters at the end of the account of Christ's death and burial. And I really, looking back, didn't feel like it was, they were given the time they needed. 
And there are several things that I purposely didn't handle because I knew there was no way I could touch on them. We come to this declaration by the soldier. Truly this was the Son of God. And both here and we saw it in Mark, this declaration came following an event that was displaced from the events around Golgotha and yet were connected to the event on Golgotha of Christ's death. And that was the shearing, the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. That as Christ was in the process of giving his very life, of breathing his last, that very elaborate and uh, extensive curtain would, was torn. It was torn not by the hands of men or by soldiers or by any uh, force of gravity or wind in, indoors, um, but rather by the working of God. And it speaks of an entirely new relationship that was created for the first time. Up until this time, the city of Jerusalem, there was this veil, this curtain. And when we think of a curtain, we think of this sheer little thing that's on your windows at home. And some of them you can even look through and see through, a little bit of light through. Um, this curtain was much more significant than that. Um, it was something that, that stood between the holy place and the holy of holy places. This veil, torn in two, would have been, um, I want to say 30 meters, um, 30 cubits high. It would have fit inside this room, but just barely. This was not just a, a small piece of fabric that had just grown old and torn. The Gospel writers include that at the very moment of Christ's death, because Christ's death itself made void the barrier from the holy place to the holy of holies. What does that mean? It means that there is a new kind of, of fullness to your walk with God, to your relationship with God. It is not that there were never any men of faith before Christ. But even in that condition of pre-Christ, these men of faith had this veil between the holy and the holiest of holies. They could work and move in this holy place and, and we find their contact with things there. Um, but what was in that holy of holies was not to have it, your eyes set upon even when they were in the tabernacle and, the, and moving around, um, men weren't allowed to see that thing, that Ark of the Covenant. It was draped and covered so that no one could see it coming and going. But with the death of Christ, with the application of His shed blood, we have an opportunity to receive by the hand of God his holiness. And by that work, we have opportunity 
for a whole new kind of relationship with God. And so we come to a statement, be holy as I am holy, and now we have the means to do so. And that being the work of Jesus Christ. Not in my own determination, but in the work of Christ on my behalf, I can be holy as God is holy. I have access into that most precious, purest place, the very presence of God's power and God's grace. We have been introduced to this very, very briefly by Christ on the cross in His statement to the criminal, today we're going to meet in a place called paradise. Now, that's an interesting place, and it's a, we've come to mean that as a very technical term. Um, there's been some discussion whether Christ saw it as that. But judging from his introduction of that same concept in his, in his uh, teaching time regarding Lazarus and the rich man, uh, we believe he was referring to this very specific. The place in par- called paradise is a place, a real place, also described as Abraham's bosom, where Old Testament saints went. It was in the place called Hades, which is a larger area than just paradise. Paradise is part of the area described as Hades. The other place is called a place of torment, or Sheol, a place of burning. The fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And Christ says, I'm going to meet you in paradise today. Because Christ is going to be going there and we are given this information on the passages where he took captivity captive. He descended into Hades to take captivity captive. That is, these Old Testament saints who are in this anticipatory state of faith. Their faith was in a Christ to come who would do this work for them. And since that work wasn't accomplished yet, they remained in this place called paradise. And Christ goes there and essentially frees them. And this is, I believe, intimately connected to the tearing of this curtain between the Holy and the Holy of Holies. For now, just as for us we can look back to it, now they could experience it. They could receive what they had anticipated by faith. They could receive. And that is the holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. That His righteousness could become theirs. And now, there was nothing between them and presence in heaven. For Christ not only became their sin, but granted them His righteousness. And we stand on this side of this historic event And so the day we come to Christ by faith, receiving Him, we are not just asking Him, Lord, forgive me my sins, but we are asking Him, Lord, make me holy. Make me qualified to be in Your very presence. Not in a holding place. That's not what waits us. That place is empty now. But rather into his very presence. And so Paul can say very differently than David. If you, if you look there, those two statements by those two men, 
and I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, David, at the loss of his, his illegitimate son with Bathsheba, um, was praying, was very concerned, and, and, and he made a statement saying, I can go to him, but he can't come to me once he had died. That baby had died as punishment. He then stopped fasting, stopped all of this, and got up and ate. Everyone was, well, you were fasting and everything while the baby was sick, and now that it's dead, you're done? He's like, yeah, it's over. I, I can go to him. I can go to where the baby is, but the baby can't come here. Well, that place was paradise. That's very different than Paul's statement. Where Paul's statement is, to be absent from this body is not to go to that place, but to be present with the Lord. And that is our condition today. Because we are not anticipating the salvific work of Christ. We are on this side of the torn curtain. We can see right into the holy place and right into the holy of holy places. And that just needs to weigh on us some time. Just to, to let that concept of just how righteous are we in our standing before God because of the work of Christ, just let that kind of drape on you for a little bit to consider that you're given access to a place that for thousands of years no one was allowed to look. And now that's home. And so when I say a brand new relationship between man and God was established when that curtain tore, I meant it for all men from all time. A brand new thing. I would even go so far as to say a better condition than Adam before sin. For we are not standing in our own innocence but in the perfection of Christ. For the work that Adam did to make us sinners, <laughs> Christ more than overcame to make us saints, holy ones. And so we look at this and, and, and verse 45 and we just kind of say, well, that's an interesting historical event. No, it was a powerful proclamation by God saying that based upon this work of Christ the Holy of Holies is opened. The beginning of the process of the end of sin and pain and death has begun. And so when we find the centurion saying verse 47 Certainly this was a righteous man. And we have in Mark, the Son of God, this dual declaration. So this is a, a righteous man. That statement now applies to all who trust in Him. Certainly, we who trust in Christ are righteous people with an equal righteousness to Christ. Not just innocent of crime, but truly carrying within us the holiness of God that we truly describe ourselves as the saints. We are called that repeatedly in Scripture. The holy ones set apart unto Christ, unto God by Christ. 
while the gospel writers record this event is not apparent to the people of Golgotha. The temple was not a long ways off if you're um, in this region um, and we believe that I believe the Garden Tomb is this area, and I believe that Golgotha has been well identified there um, adjacent to the Garden Tomb. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, um, rather than the, <laughs> the other sepulcher there in Jerusalem, that's a horrific place to visit. Um, it's just the most... Th- this picture of people beating their breasts and wailing, that's still going on in that building, where they have built a building over the place where they think Christ might have died. Um, but the garden tomb, which was identified um, by another group, and it was actually a garbage dump when they found it, and was excavating cleaned, um, is outside the gate, which is obvious that that's where Christ went to. Um, and it was right there along the entry into the gate where Romans typically did do their crucifixions so that it would be seen to everyone coming and going who was in charge and what the consequence would be of of going against that. So, the temple was some distance away, but because of the circumstances of what time of year it is, this is the Passover week. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the highest religious time for Israel. It wouldn't have been very long before word was disseminated throughout the entire region of this event of the curtain being torn. But its immediate knowledge in this area at Golgotha isn't evident yet. I think it is a wondrous thing that how God puts this together and pieces it together in verse 50. So we have the tearing of the temple, opening up the Holy of Holies. We have a Roman soldier saying, certainly this is a righteous or just or holy man. And then we have, of all the people to kind of uh, work alongside uh, the burial was, in verse 50, a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He wasn't going to consent to the decision made by the council. He wasn't there. He was from Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Goes to Pilate and asks for the body. And we tend to speak about the crowds and the people in very generalized terms. You've heard me use it a lot, the, lead, the religious leaders. But there were the exceptions. And in every people group, there are the exceptions who aren't following the course of mobs and the course of, of falsehood and, and deceit who will take their stand and say, this isn't right. And Joseph was one of those individuals. He didn't agree with what was done. And yet, he was to be the benefactor of what was done. He wanted to be a benefactor to Christ, but it was certain that he would be the one who would receive much more. 
I want you to notice that Joseph wasn't concerned about Passover anymore. If you remember that morning, the religious leaders wouldn't go into Pilate's house. They stayed in the courtyard because they wanted to remain ceremonially clean. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I got goosebumps now. The people who wanted to stay pure for the Passover wouldn't even go in and talk to Pilate, because, but they wanted to do a murder against an innocent person. Do you see the irony of it all? The men who were so self-righteous that they didn't want to go too close to a Gentile or touch any of his stuff so they'd become ceremonially impure were there to seek to murder the Son of God. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. And now here is one of their number who wasn't there and didn't participate in this. Says, this is wrong. I'm not going to go to illegal uh, trials in the middle of the night. I'm not going to go there. And now the man who in every Jewish perspective is going to do everything <laughs> from their view that's unclean. Look at what he does. He goes and talks to Pilate himself. He goes and he has a conversation with Pilate. This was the, I mean, we're ticking down. The sacrifice is almost about to happen. We're ticking down to the last few, maybe an hour or less than an hour before sunset and, and this high Sabbath comes on and a man is walking into a Gentile's house and saying, I want the body. Now you're ceremonially unclean, but it gets worse. Because you're going to touch a dead thing. I want you to see that this is a religious leader who says, you know what? You can keep your ceremonial cleanliness. I choose and opt for the righteous one. If that means I have to get ceremonially a little dirty, I'm going to be pure before God. And you could almost imagine his peers, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. I mean, these are his peers. He is on the council with them, pointing their bony little fingers at him and saying, you're unclean, you're unclean, you're unclean. But he finally comes out and says, I don't care what you think. Because my cleanliness isn't about my own activity, but about the work of this man that you've just murdered. This man on Calvary's cross has cleansed me. And I will never be unclean again. Isn't that amazing? The man who didn't care about ceremony, who only cared about Christ, and went to that dirty, rotten dog of a Gentile pilot, asked for the body of Christ, Joseph took it down. Joseph wrapped it in a linen. Joseph laid it in a tomb. Those who now the rock where no one ever laid. We know it from other courses that's his own. <laughs> Joseph. Understood what the tearing of that veil meant. That it meant that a holiness 
so far above anything man can acquire for himself, was now available to all who would believe. And that statement that he was looking, or I'm sorry, waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a man anticipating the work of Christ. And as one group is worried about the ceremony of staying clean, one man said, if I'm unclean from your ceremonial duties, so be it. My faith is in this one, Jesus Christ. And it's to him that I will put my attentions and my waiting and my looking and my anticipations. You do your evil, but real men who are good and just, not just ceremonially clean, but men who are truly good and seek justice. This is the first one we're going to find. Another description is going to be given of other men, Gentiles and Jews alike, who are going to be called good and just, and they want to find the truth, and God finds them out. Here was a man looking for the kingdom of God, waiting for it, and saw it in Jesus Christ and said, I'm going to go against everything I've stood for in the past. (laughs) I mean, here it is. The highest of religious actions are going to take place in just a couple of hours or less. And I'm going to make myself unqualified for it so that I can be qualified for the Holy of Holies by this one Jesus. Let's not get trapped in the idea that somehow by fulfilling men's concepts of religion, that we are holy before God. In fact, there are occasions when those very institutions may keep us from being holy. When we are trusting and praying the rosary instead of trusting in Jesus Christ to be holy, you are like those who are worried about being ceremonially clean while murdering Christ. You stand guilty before Him, not innocent. You haven't removed any sin. You have added to your sin. And here is one who says, I'm getting rid of all that junk. I'm getting rid of all that. And if there's any one person who presages what's going to happen in Acts in the Jerusalem council when they say, you know what, the gospel is going to the Gentiles and the Mosaic law, we're not putting it on anybody. And it is Joseph of Arimathea who presages it because he says, listen, the ceremonial law is no longer what I trust in. It's this one Jesus. And he's put this one to bed. This one's finished. It's completed. And it's completed by this person, Jesus Christ. And I no longer have to concern myself with that because I am holy by His work. And the torn veil proves the point. I believe Joseph knew the veil was torn. As one of the council members, they would have been 
had intimate knowledge. This would have come to them very quickly, this knowledge. Even in the dark. Which it was dark at midday. And that's still the last relationship I'm not going to get to this morning. Joseph gives us a testimony to pull ourselves and draw ourselves out of the religious baggage and let's bring ourselves into a pure relationship with God, not by our work, but by trusting in Christ's work on the cross that day. And it would be a shameful thing, as Paul tells Peter, gives us a record of in Galatians, it's a shameful thing then to try to go back and say, I'm clean in Christ, but I have to be ceremonially pure as well by this list of do's and don'ts that men created. Or even going back in the Old Testament law God created. He didn't create that to save people, but to point out sin. But rather, we are to move forward. As Paul tells the Galatian Christians, it's time not to go back into that stuff, into the bondage of it, but it's time to go forward and to recognize that we have a liberty to live holy as God is holy. Do we have a liberty to love one another in a manner that the ceremony of cleanliness can't? Because it's only concerned about yourself. Often wondered. about Joseph's relationship, if there was any future relationship between him and Pilate. And Pilate would have understood to some degree who Joseph was and the significance of what Joseph was doing. And Pilate's last question to Christ was, what is truth? And it never really got answered. I'd like to believe that Joseph maybe had something to say to Pilate about that question. We're not giving any record of that, so it's all speculation. Maybe I should go write a historic novel over it, make money out of it. But you know what? Joseph had a testimony to Pilate that the religious leaders didn't. And if I was, and it tells us that Pilate was very disconcerted. During the trial, he was. By the testimony of his wife coming out and saying, I had a dream. You watch this. You better get yourself away from this guy, Jesus. And now he's got a council member of the Jews coming to him, willing to defile himself ceremonially so that he could do justly to Christ. And that powerful testimony to Pilate If Pilate doesn't receive Christ, just adds to the burden, to the weight of his guilt that day. This message has the same effect. It can either deliver you, and you can rejoice in it, for you can trust in this Christ, or it can add to the weight of your guilt before God, because you still think somehow you can achieve it on your own merit. And you're to keep up appearances before men that you're ceremonially clean. Everyone says there's a good Christian. 
but there is no relationship. I praise God for a bold act by a man who carried a lot of responsibility on his shoulders before his people and stood up and said, this isn't right, but this one is the righteous one. I look to him for a kingdom to come.